Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking about a figure I think that a lot of people in the general public have heard of, probably a lot of our listeners have heard of and know something about, maybe, but to understand the full depth and range of the life and thinking of Adam Smith, a seminal, the important figure in the history of political thought, in the history of political economy, and really uh, in the world system in many ways that we live in of free trade and commercial republics. And to join us in that conversation about Adam Smith, uh, his thought and importance is Professor Bree Wolf. Bree is uh, assistant professor of political theory at James Madison College, the Honors College at Michigan State University in East Lansing. She teaches courses on the Scottish and French Enlightenments, and a course in her uh, particular area of specialty, political economy. Um, Bree got her BA from James Madison College in Michigan State, so she's gone back home (laughs) to to Spartan World. Um, She got her MA at the University of Chicago and her PhD from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. She's published widely on uh, important figures in the history of political thought. People like uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, of course, Adam Smith, Alexis de Tocqueville, and Friedrich Hayek. Um, I, you're, you've got a current book project uh, that you're working on. Is that right, Bree? I'd love That's to have right, our yes, listeners. It's still in progress. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about our, our listeners will be interested. Yeah, so um, the book project is an outgrowth of the the dissertation, and really there, I'm trying to look at the, what I call the affective or the emotional, the moral aspects of liberalism, and really trying to um, recover those, Um, especially for a lot of critics of liberalism today who want to say that liberalism can't answer um, challenges that come to it about self-interest, about greed, about individualism, and that liberalism actually promotes those things. Um, And so I'm looking back into the 18th century, the origins of liberalism, before we even call it that, uh, to try to see what kind of response there is. And so I look at a number of thinkers who are telling us that, hey, we've got a lot of resources to think about our moral and emotional ties to one another. And I really develop that idea through the notion of aesthetic judgment, or as they're calling it, taste, really, and try to think about ways that we can build bonds with one another um, through our judgments of what is beautiful and good in the world. 
um, and in the more academic realms, um, a lot of people turn to this notion of empathy or what they called it in the 18th century sympathy, um, where you have to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And I try to say um, that's a good thing to do, but that's actually really difficult. And so I'm trying to think about a sort of lower threshold that we can begin to talk about really important issues with one another. And I think taste, taste is it. Wow, that's fascinating and very interesting. What's the title uh, or working title of your book? <laughs> yeah, um, so it'll definitely include uh, liberalism with taste, but right now I have uh, beyond rights and price. And so I think there's really um, two ways we sort of defend a liberal society. We go a sort of economic route and say, look at the, the uh, mass amount of flourishing and wealth um, that we've been able to develop through market society which I think is really important. And we coordinate with one another based on property rights and price. Um, but that's maybe not helping to build some of those emotional ties. I think it can, um, but is, is necessary, but not sufficient, maybe. And then um, another way we do it is talking about the way in which we're able to um, get a series of rights um, under liberal society, those laws and institutions. And while, again, essential for human freedom, uh, I think we need, need more than that to have a flourishing liberal society. Well, I'm looking forward, and I know our listeners will be looking forward to the book when it comes out. Uh, Adam Smith, he's he's in that tradition, that classical liberal tradition of, of individual liberty, of free markets, of course, uh, and commerce. Um, he, interestingly enough, I was just reminded of it this morning, uh, you mentioned about the, the question of does, does classical liberalism, does, does a free society actually care about morality? Um, and moral judgments and moral relations among citizens or is all just about self-interest and greed. I was reminded this morning that Adam Smith, when he taught university, uh, he was a professor of moral philosophy. Yes. Tell us about Adam Smith, maybe before he becomes famous and his place uh, there in, in Britain. Yeah, that's right. So Smith, um, for a lot of his life, is a professor, um, actually the chair of moral philosophy at Glasgow University. And that's when he writes his first book um, that I think is getting to be better known now, but is definitely the lesser known of his two works, um, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And so most people know An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, which he publishes in 1776, um, a year that listeners will be familiar with, I'm sure. Um, but the first book is actually published in 1759, and he revises uh, Theory of Moral Sentiments throughout his whole life, uh, the sixth edition coming out, the final edition in 1790. And so he's really thinking about issues of how we develop moral judgment, moral norms, and really connections with um, each other throughout um, his entire life. That's interesting because it's not what we normally think about when we think about Adam Smith. If, yeah. if, if listeners know Adam Smith or they've heard of him, they think about, oh, yeah, everything's got to be based on self-interest and me trying to benefit in the maximum amount possible. And that's my only connection with other people. What does Adam Smith say about moral sentiments? Yeah, um, whole, a whole uh, 300 and some pages about it. But um, I'll just say a little bit about um, the main principle that comes out of that book about how we build um, moral connections with one another, which is which is sympathy. Um, and so I think really that each each book, uh, Wealth of Nations and uh, TMS, if I can abbreviate it, Theory of Moral Sentiments, um, gives us two different pictures of how um, human beings uh, 
operate in the world, right? So in Wealth of Nations, we get a story about self-interest, um, which is different than selfishness. And maybe we can come um, back to that where he thinks that we have this principle of wanting to exchange to better our condition. Um, and then in theory of moral sentiments, we get this notion of sympathy. A lot of people think about that as something like pity. Um, if you're thinking about someone like Rousseau, where you feel bad that someone else is suffering, um, but it's different for Smith. It's really this it's process that's a two-way street um, whereby we're connecting with one another. And he says that everybody does it. Um, even the first language of the book, the first line, how selfish soever man may be supposed, there are some principles in his nature that interest him in the fortune of others. I think I got all the words. Um, and so how this process works. Um, we're going about the world, trying to figure things out, trying to understand it. And he thinks we can't help but feel with other people. So um, when I see someone reacting to something in the world, I'm trying to understand um, that reaction. I try to put myself in their shoes, to speak sort of colloquially. And so through that imaginative exchange, I try to think about why are they having the reaction that they're having? And then I bring that... Um, my imagination of myself in their place, home to myself, and then I judge it. So I sort of say, okay, I see that um, they're having a, a reaction. Perhaps um, I like to use with my students, they've gotten a bad grade on an exam or something like this. And um, occasionally that say, does happen. It does happen, unfortunately. Most of the time they're doing pretty well, but sometimes people don't like their grades. Um, and so you know, the person's upset and you sort of notice that. How would I feel if I was in their shoes? And then you bring it home to yourself and judge is that an appropriate response? Maybe if they're um, sort of down for a day, we might think that that's appropriate. If they're crying for a week, we might think that's um, disproportionate to uh, the particular example. And then we form a, form a judgment. And through us doing that all the time in every interaction in our life and people doing that with us as well, um, we feel understood and part of a society, but we also begin to form norms and rules and judgments of appropriate behavior in, in civil society. So help us understand something of the, you, you mentioned Adam Smith is a professor of moral philosophy, chair of the Department of Moral Philosophy at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. Um, and he's writing there in the last half of the 1700s, the 18th century, and, and, and being a professor and lecturing. Why is he so interested in this question that, as you say, as he puts it, of moral sentiments, of sympathy, of what connects people in a society? Yeah, I mean, I think some of his teachers were very interested in this question. So one um, in the 18th century, uh, Francis Hutcheson, another um, part of the Scottish Enlightenment tradition um, as well. His, his very good friend, uh, David Hume, is also asking questions about this. They belong to a number of, um, charitably, we could call them like book clubs, but also, um, I think, drinking societies, places <laughs> to engage in ideas. Um, and this is sort of a a question in the air. Um, they're also really responding to um, another set of ideas that's coming out that actually says that human beings are selfish. Um, so somebody or a couple of people that um, Smith is thinking of and, and quotes directly in Theory of Moral Sentiments, uh, Bernard Mandeville, who has this um, idea about private vice, uh, public benefits. Um, and he has this theory that everybody's selfish, everybody's doing what they want for themselves without much regard for other people. Uh, I think that's, that's an okay way to say it. Some scholars would challenge that. Um, and that's okay though, because us all running around doing what is in our best interest ends up working out for society as a whole. 
We also see thinkers like Hobbes, um, who has a, a selfish understanding of how people interact with, with the world for him, um, the state of nature, time before society is a state of war, we wouldn't really be doing kind acts to other people or thinking about them much. And so for Smith, he's trying to refute that. And he, th he thinks human beings don't really behave that way. And so he's trying to think about um, looking at the world around me, what do I notice about people? Um, but he also has a sort of ideal of the way um, things ought to be as well. And can you say a little bit more about that ideal? What does he think in, in theory, moral sentiments, how does he want people uh, in a free society where they're not forced by the law to do certain things? How does he want them to relate with each other? Yeah, um, I think that there are lots of different possibilities. So one of the things I really like in thinking about Smith is that there isn't sort of one definition of the good life or the ideal, um, as, we've, as we've been calling it, that there are many ways that one could um, operate in society and get along with others. And that's why it's so important, as you mentioned, Jeff, not to have sort of these really strict laws that restrict what people might um, might do. So um, at one point in the book, he says that we can think about justice as mere justice or negative justice where we're not doing harm to other people. Um, and he sort of says that would be okay, uh, although not the best form of society, right? We don't wanna just refrain from harming other people we also might want to um, contribute to their to their good in some way. He talks about a number of virtues in different places. So he talks about prudence as being a virtue that we see a lot in commercial society. He also talks about beneficence, magnanimity. So there are lots of options um, for how one might one might behave. But I think um, something that comes up for him a lot in thinking about justice is not just sort of the mere level of justice, but when we see an injustice that we, our passions might be sort of ignited by that or inflamed by that. And we might want to advocate on others' behalf. Um, and especially in the relevant spheres of influence for us. Um, so one of the things he outlines is that we have, um, it's called circles of sympathy. So the person that we know best is ourselves because we're around us all the time. And then our family members, the people we live with, people we work with, our friends, um, and onward to our country and then everybody else sort of in the world. And he really emphasizes that we can have the most good sort of on the circles that are closest to us. But he also wants us to think about distant others, people who might be farther outside that circle and how we can, can benefit those people as well. Um, so he doesn't want to sort of us to always be worried about the universal, um, but it's sort of not sufficient to only be worried about our, our circle either. So that's a very fascinating uh, idea and understanding of Adam Smith, that there's this kind of very rich uh, moral thinking about our obligations to others, how we should act toward others, not harming them, not taking advantage of them, not being selfish and taking probably more than we should. Um, right. How does that connect? That's the book called Theory of Moral Sentiments. As you said, right. Smith's more famous book, The Wealth of Nations. How does that, which is published later, yes. how, does that, how does that connect with the wealth of nations? Did Smith then, what's the main argument of that book? And is he turning his back on his earlier work? Or do you see somehow these two books coming together in a coherent whole? I definitely see them as being coherent, connected, having a similar, similar message and idea. Um, and I'll explain how I think that is. So for a long time, um, 
scholars uh, thought about there being, uh, it was a set of German philosophers, they called it the Das Adam Smith problem, which was this idea that these two books were really, really different. How could the same person write a book that talks about um, our moral generosity to others, if I can call it that way, or our interest in other people's feelings, saying that we are, are happy when we can understand others and be understood by them. Um, and then this other book that talks about how individuals and really nations can get very wealthy, that talks about efficiency, um, that talks about progress. These things don't seem to go together. Um, but a lot of my work looks at um, when in Wealth of Nations, Smith will make a policy recommendation. There's sort of two levels of it. He'll make an efficiency recommendation. I think that has a lot to do with the audience of the book, merchants, politicians, um, people who are advocating uh, the main economic policy in, in Britain and really um, Western Europe at the time, um, mercantilism, which is that economics is kind of a zero-sum game. I'm getting wealthier as a nation if I'm um, over and against your nation. We can't both get wealthy. It's sort of how can I beat you in this game? How can I arrange my trade such that I can have an overbalance, it was called, or I'm having more exports than imports. And so every nation is trying to make sure that they're exporting more than they're importing. You can see how quickly this would not work out very well. Um, right, right. And thinking about wealth only as sort of amassing um, stocks of gold and silver. And so Smith wants to explain why free trade is a much better arrangement than that. Um, and so, yes, oftentimes with his policies, it's sort of like, look, you guys will make a lot more money if you don't think about things in this zero-sum way and you um, let countries sort of specialize in what they're good at. If you um, divide labor into several different parts instead of having one person make something from start to finish, definitely there. Um, but then if you sort of read it more, and especially with theory of moral sentiments in mind, you see that oftentimes there's also a a moral implication for free trade, for human dignity, for human freedom, for developing and utilizing human creativity, um, developing people's judgment, all of those things. So it's called a, an inquiry into the causes. Is that right? Nature, nature, nature and causes. Of, of the wealth of nations. What does Smith think causes some nations to get wealthy while others don't? This is the perennial question that has come out of Smith, and we still don't have something like a, a formula that you can sort of plug in anywhere and make any nation wealthy. If we did, all nations would be wealthy. So economists are still grappling with this, this question. Um, I'll give that as the caveat. But for Smith, um, what makes nations wealthy is sort of um, unleashing or unlocking or allowing all individuals um, to be able to pursue um, their interests and their own understanding of how to better their own condition. This is a language he uses. So he thinks that naturally, I sort of mentioned before, that the propensity for human beings is to, he says, truck barter and exchange, all different forms of trying to um, get what we, what we want in the world. And so nations do best when they allow individuals to use, um, he'll use the language of their local judgment or the judgment of their local circumstances um, to, their, to their best advantage. We sort of understand, um, just like the circles of sympathy, the world around us best and how to do it most efficiently. 
One of my favorite stories in the book, um, when he's first introducing the division of labor at the beginning of the book, uh, it's one of the things he's most famous for. He did not invent it. He was sort of writing down what he saw going on in the world, um, one of the first to do so. But he tells this story of a little boy who is responsible for opening and closing a valve to make um, an engine work. And the little boy figures out that he can um, tie it up to rig it somehow so it'll open and close on its own. And Smith then says that he finds himself at liberty to play with his friends more for the rest of the day. And Smith sort of uses this as an example to say, if we enable people to use their own creativity, ingenuity, their local knowledge, um, we'll figure out a more efficient way to do things. Um, and so that little boy gets liberty. Uh, the person who is employing him uh, gets a cheaper way to operate his machinery. Um, and so really that's the story that he weaves throughout the book. Um, that also has consequences for human dignity oftentimes. Um, I've written about another sort of case that comes up in the book. Um, he talks about uh, this set of laws known as the poor laws, um, a specific version of those called the Settlement Act. I'm thinking about how we offer relief to the people who are now in the division of labor and sometimes lose jobs, don't have a farm to go back to, to be able to take care of their families. And um, Smith is someone who cares a lot about the dignity of the poor. We might come back to that again, a surprising thing um, about his, his thought from the caricatures people often have. Um, but in that telling about the policy, he actually doesn't like it. Um, and so that's sort of surprising. If you know that he cares about the poor, why wouldn't he want to offer them relief? Well, he doesn't like the way that the law is doing it. So there are sort of two um, implications that there are overseers in each individual town called a parish uh, that sort of have arbitrary judgment about whether or not someone can move to a parish to get a job. Um, so that's an economic efficiency argument on the one hand, right? That people can't follow the market for labor. Um, but the other part of that, that component um, is that uh, these overseers can judge for the whole parish people's character when they don't have much to go on. And then it sort of doesn't allow them human dignity or to be able to um, morally exchange with people because they've suddenly got this judgment handed down from on high about, about these people. Um, and then they're not able to feed their families. Um, and so that's an example sort of of there's an efficiency point, but then also human dignity point. So we create uh, nations create wealth, Smith thinks. And if your goal is to become richer as a nation and more prosperous, as you say, by a division of labor. So people start getting really good at certain specified tasks, which frees up other people to do the things they're good at. In the process, everybody becomes more productive. Um, right. That's but then what about the part about trade? And you mentioned free trade. And the, the, the dominant view at the time was, as you said, mercantilism, which is trade is a zero sum game. One country gets richer through trade, another country gets poorer. Does Smith think that free trade makes every country richer? Definitely. Um, he, he thinks that there's uh, the natural liberty of trade, he sort of, he sort of calls it. And so um, there are some, some great examples um, talking about, you know, we could enforce everybody to buy Scottish wine. Why would we do that? It doesn't taste very good. French wine is, is very good. But it's not only that, it's that they're better at producing it. So uh, we don't yet have the economic concept of comparative advantage as such. David Ricardo is going to come along later and codify that. But we see something like that in Smith. So um, the division of labor, he'll say, is limited by the extent of the market. 
So if we have a smaller market, um, the amount of specialized things we can make is, is sort of limited. I always use in my classes, the example of the classroom, right? If our, if our class is the market, so 30 people or so, um, let's say I want to specialize in making um, a very specific kind of shoe. I often make up some kind of crazy, like five inch high heel pink uh, furry stiletto or something. That's that, not yeah, that's average. very that's very specific. <laughs> it is. It's, it is. And some people might want to make that and some people might want to buy that. But if our market is 30, uh, it becomes really hard if I decide that's what I want to produce and specialize in. That's not the shoe that most people need most days, right? But if we begin to expand our market beyond the classroom to our city, to our um, state, to our nation, to other countries, we can um, better satisfy people's needs because we can make things that um, might be very specific and niche, like that high-heeled shoe. Um, and I can make money wanting to make that thing. And then there will be a market of people who actually want to buy it and, and will use it. And so um, that's one of the ways that uh, free trade works is that uh, the countries who can make things the, the cheapest, the most efficiently can do that. And then they can trade for the things that they can't make as well. And this is a way um, that everyone can get wealthy, whereas it's pretty expensive to try to make just like if you as an individual had to make everything yourself, as a nation, you have to figure out all of the ways and devices to make things that other countries may have already figured out and be able to do um, much more quickly and efficiently than, than, than you can. And it's also a way to satisfy more people's wants and desires, their effort to better their condition in Smith's language. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. Hi, this is John Moser, chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. If you are an educator who teaches US history, government, or politics, our program may be just what you've been looking for. Our approach is to emphasize primary sources since we think the best way to study the past is to read the words of those who lived it. We have a distinguished faculty made up of professors from both Ashland University and from colleges and universities across the country. And they're not there to lecture to you. We think it's better to learn through conversation about the documents. Ours is a hybrid program with two different types of seminar. The first are our week-long intensive in-person courses during the summers on the beautiful campus of Ashland University. The second are our live synchronous online seminars offered throughout the year. So if you're a social studies teacher and you're looking to deepen your understanding of America's past and its politics, please check out the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can do that by visiting tah.org slash programs. So some, we hear, uh, it's, uh, this is still a topic today, as you know, right? Free trade. It is. <laughs> not free trade or restrictions on free trade. Um, how, how does Smith, uh, if, he, if he does handle this objection, how does he handle the objection that people, maybe even in his own day, were making, which is um, we need to put up barriers to trade, to buying stuff from other countries for industries that we want to support inside our own country. So we want to put up big tariffs or we just want to forbid trade in certain things because we want our own country to make something. What does Smith think about that argument? Yeah, um, what's often called economic nationalism or in Smith's time, um, that was the basic theory of mercantilism. So really all of book four of Wealth of Nations is, is about this. But 
Um, what I find really interesting in Smith, there's a small part where he um, discusses tariffs and I would have expected him to say, uh, he doesn't use the language of tariffs, but it's tariffs, um, that like he has been uh, railing against mercantilism the whole book, that tariffs are everywhere and always sort of terrible. Um, actually, in this one spot, he mentions that they maybe can work in very, very limited and narrow cases. Um, and what he ends up saying is that you might want to consider tariffs if um, you need to protect the nation um, in a defensive maneuver, right? So um, part of what he's thinking about are the navigation acts in his time, but he wants to think about we might want to have a tariff on something if we need it for um, war or if it specifically harms another nation who's trying to attack us in a military endeavor or something like this. But I want to mention that he, at the end of that, that brief treatment of um, what we today would call tariffs, he is sort of worried about the statesman or the legislate, legislator who might enact these. And he sort of says, you have to use very, very careful judgment or something like this. I'm not going to get the language exactly right. Um, because they are really hard to repeal once you've put them in place. And so the legislator has to use a lot of judgment, a lot of wisdom, and be very careful um, and not sort of use the tool of tariffs to favor um, one group in your country over another. It's really when we're thinking about these cases of um, national defense. Some, so some people would argue, because uh, you mentioned his concern for the dignity of the poor, some people would argue and probably did argue in Smith's day that restricting free trade, putting up a lot of barriers to certain goods would allow poor people to get jobs in those industries in their country. How does Smith think that free trade actually helps the dignity of the poor? In many ways. Um, so one, one way that I've already mentioned um, is that they're sort of able to judge for themselves what the best situation uh, for them or the best use of their skills or where they want to live or what kind of work they want to do um, sort of enables individual judgment and dignity in that way. So one of the things Smith thinks about is how the division of labor and commerce more generally overthrew the feudal system. Um, this is a subject of book three, and he says it's really when um, and the way he tells the story, when the feudal lords discovered that they could have all of the kind of specialized, specific things that could come out of the division of labor, trinkets and baubles, Smith says, or diamond buckles for their shoes, um, they end up sort of um, trading all this power they had over their serfs um, for all this stuff. And instead, the serfs become employed in the sort of industrial system of 18th century Britain. Um, and that works out for the serfs because they have more freedom and independence of judgment. Um, another way Smith thinks it helps the dignity of the poor um, is that they're able to have access to um, more things that make life easier to live um, in a lot of ways. So one of the examples he uses early on in the book uh, is the example of a woolen coat. A lot of times today in economics, we use the example of a pencil. You think about all of the things that had to go into making this item. Um, could you, any of us make a pencil from scratch? It's such a simple object. If we lose it, we don't care. Um, and yet I couldn't make a pencil from scratch, right? I definitely um, could not. <laughs> I, I don't even want to try. Um, and so 
one of the things that the poor get is a, access to a lot of goods um, at a cheaper cost. Um, so they get jobs, access to lots of jobs that don't require a lot of education or an apprenticeship. They also get access to goods at a, at a cheaper um, price, which allows them to pursue other things, perhaps. Um, so those are some important things um, for Smith that come uh, out of free trade for uh, the dignity of the poor sort of choice and their material condition is much better. Um, I will say though, he is worried about the division of labor and the effect on the dignity of the poor. And we hear some of these um, arguments today, we sort of worry about as we get more and more efficient, um, what's gonna happen to the jobs or te is technology gonna take them away? Um, so it's not as worried about that. He thinks that people will always be able to find jobs, but he is worried about um, what happens to uh, the mental capacity of someone whose job it is to put a head on a pin every day, day in and day out, all day long, um, not having any other kind of intellectual stimulation. Um, and he deals with this in, in book five of Ultimations when he's thinking about uh, what's the role of the sovereign. And he actually says that the role of the sovereign would be to one of the roles uh, to introduce some kind of educational system, because for many reasons, uh, some of them we've discussed the moral judgment, you need to have some kind of intellectual development. And so the sovereign would need to put in some kind of educational system for the laboring poor. I see. Okay. Well, this book, I mean, that's fascinating, um, showing his kind of multiplicity of concerns for not just nations getting wealthier, but that wealth production benefiting a lot of people, not yeah. just the rich, or maybe in particularly not the rich, um, but the working classes and the poor. Um, the book comes out, as you already said, in 1776, an auspicious year for uh, our listeners who are in America, for America, the country, of course. Yes. Um, Smith does say some things about America, if I'm not mistaken. He does. What's, what's his view for us Americans who would be interested on what this really profoundly important thinker in political economy has to say about our country, America? Yeah. Um, so first I'll say about the 1776 bit, um, we actually know that Smith had an interest in what was going on in America, not just because he writes about them in Wealth of Nations um, and in another piece called Thoughts on the Contest of the State with America, and I'll mention that in a minute, um, but uh, in a letter um, from David Hume to Adam Smith, one of his good friends, um, a figure in the Scottish Enlightenment, um, he was sort of getting after Smith and saying, why haven't you published Wealth of Nations? I know that you have it ready. What are you waiting for? Um, and here's what he says. I, I have it pulled up. I thought our the listeners would be interested. He says, by all accounts, Smith, your book has been printed long ago. It has never been so much as advertised. What is the reason? If you wait till the fate of America be decided, you may wait too long. And this was in February of 1776. Um, and so Smith was very interested in sort of, I think he wanted to uh, make sure that Wealth of Nations would not contradict what was going on in the American um, contest with Britain or um, be able to comment on it. Um, in Wealth of Nations itself, um, he thinks about uh, the colonial project for Europe uh, more broadly and has a lot of harsh words about it um, because the colonial system is also part of the mercantilist philosophy whereby colonies are forced to produce uh, the raw materials that then are 
refined into products um, in the mother country, these European countries who, um, for lack of a better term, owned the colonies. Um, and then they're only allowed to trade with, with the mother country. Smith um, didn't like that for reasons we've discussed of free, free trade, that um, that's not an efficient system. It's also not the best uh, situation for the the um, indigenous peoples in the colonies um, who are um, being submitted to a lot of violence um, as uh, the Europeans are trying to get uh, resources, but also for uh, the emigrants to the colonies, they're not able to get the best price for their goods. And thinking specifically about the American case, uh, Smith says that they're being denied representation, essentially, that, that we should think about them as our countrymen and um, we're sort of back in, in, in Britain being sort of jealous of our liberties and sort of prideful about the colonies as our possession. Um, he talks about them in that way. And that we could actually have a much better relationship both economically for trade, but also um, for uh, our sort of political connections if we would uh, allow the colonies to have their own um, representation uh, in parliament. So that's one of the things he says. And then he has this piece, um, Thoughts on the State of the Contest with America, that he writes um, in 1778, so after Wealth of Nations, uh, for Alexander Wedderburn, who was Lord North, the Prime Minister at the time, um, his Solicitor General. And he gives a number of potential options about how he thinks that Britain should approach the, the contest with America, but actually his strongest recommendation is for Britain to emancipate the colonies, um, which was not the common opinion. Really? Wow, <laughs> yeah. wow. Um, and uh, he says to quote, by treaty, um, and join them in a constitutional union where they would share rights of trade and representation and dignity with other citizens. Um, he also gives some, some other options that you know we could have a continuation of the colonial relationship. Um, there, are, there are these other ones, but the strongest one he gives is um, for emancipation. Well, that's really interesting. So how is Adam Smith's work received in America? His, his uh, Wealth of Nations book, among, uh, probably most prominently, what's his American readership? How do they take Smith and do they take his ideas and think, yeah, these are great ideas. We should start forming our country on these economic, political economic principles. Yeah, this is of a lot of interest to scholars and, and work is still being done, sort of trying to tease out the specific relationship um, between Smith and, and the sort of founding period. Um, so he's not as well read as someone like Montesquieu, who, um, if I'm not mistaken, was sort of in second place to the Bible um, in terms of readership uh, in, in early America. Right, right. Um, but uh, we do know that folks uh, had Smith um, in their um, libraries. And we especially know that people were reading him because of uh, his presence of his works on college syllabi or in college curriculum or college libraries. Um, and so there was some exposure that way. Um, we know James Madison was engaging a lot with David Hume, and we think a lot of his ideas are also tied uh, to Smith. We know that Alexander Hamilton read Smith um, because he basically quotes without quoting Smith. Uh, but the thing Hamilton does is then use Smith's ideas to his own ends uh, that aren't actually consistent with what Smith was saying. Uh, <laughs> Sounds Hamilton, like something Alexander Hamilton yeah, might do. It's, it's definitely consistent. Um, he wants to build a big state capacity and he wants to um, build state commerce and essentially to um, boil it down in simple terms. Uh, I think that our fair Hamilton um, 
wants to say, well, Europe's playing the mercantilist game. So, so, so should we, or we're going to lose. Um, so we know that he was reading him. Um, James Wilson uh, may have heard some of Smith's lectures on government known as the lectures on jurisprudence. We don't have a book on jurisprudence. Smith wanted to write one, um, but never finished. Um, but we have student notes. Um, and we think that uh, James Wilson also um, heard some of those things. So Smith was, uh, if I can use the phrase, in the air, so to speak. What about the legacy of Adam Smith for today? Because it really does seem amazingly like debates, even in America today, about political economy, about free markets, about free trade, have come back up again in really powerful ways. And in some ways, if you think about the contemporary political parties, uh, now there are parts of both political parties that are free market and free trade, and also much more skeptical of free markets and free trade. What's the place in the importance and the legacy of Adam Smith, do you think, for today? Yeah, um, I think Smith has a lot of relevance for today. Um, I wouldn't be sitting here, my whole career is based on the idea of thinking about that his, um, his ideas and others um, speak to us today for sure. Um, I think I want to encourage a different sort of understanding of how we might think about his legacy. So I think there's a popular caricature of Smith um, that hopefully our discussion has dispelled some of Smith as uh, someone who thinks, uh, you know, greed is good or that that's what capitalism means. Um, we think about him as the quote unquote father of economics or the father of capitalism. And so that's the way his name is often thrown around, thrown around as sort of justifying a completely hands off, no government at all, laissez faire, it's called um, interpretation of, of free trade. And I don't really think that's fair for a number of reasons I've said. There's definitely a role for government. There's this um, intense moral implication of his, of his ideas. Um, but I think the reason why um, the economics profession and when we think about economic ideas, we keep going back to Smith is that he really touched on a number of things that still really matter when we're thinking about economic questions. Um, and so he can give us a nice starting place to think about um, not sort of economic questions in a vacuum, but also how they relate to our broader sort of moral and, and political um, life. I'll also say um, a colleague of mine in uh, the political theory field has a, a book coming out soon called Adam Smith's America that does a nice job of tracing um, all the ways uh, we've used Smith in America uh, over time. Um, that's by Glory Lou. It's coming out with uh, Princeton. Um, and that that is a way to think about the ways our understanding of um, Smith have changed. But for me, I really think that Smith um, can help us have a, a deeper and broader understanding of economics than we want to, and really one that is um, accessible. You can read Smith in a way that some people are scared away by economics um, and, and economic ideas or theories or models. Um, and he can really help us think through some of the practical uh, implications. So I think he's as relevant today as he was in 1776. How's that? Still, yeah, still a great, still a great thinker, still a, a really important person to engage. Uh, thank you for taking the time today to shed some light on this really fundamentally significant person in the development of, of Western political thought and the development in many ways of America and American political economy. Bree Wolf, thank you so much for joining us on The American Idea. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. It's been fun. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. We're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review and like, follow, or subscribe on your platform of choice. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Thanks again for joining us.